Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Catherine Butner about her second novel, Killingly. Like the book featured in my last interview, Killingly takes place in the late 19th century United States and addresses, among other themes, tension between Catholic immigrants and the Protestants who control many of the country's elite institutions. At its heart, though, this is a very different story. Based on the real-life disappearance of a Mount Holyoke College student in 1897, this historical suspense novel delves deep into the roiling depths of love, familial, friendly, and romantic, innocent and twisted. The first person we meet in the novel, however, is not the missing Bertha, but her friend Agnes. That morning, Agnes was drawing the cracked pelvis of a beaver. She had found it in the woods near Upper Lake, where the men had been searching for Bertha. Usually, she could collect only chipmunk bones or rabbit or squirrel. She'd never drawn a beaver before. The men were still searching for Bertha. Agnes had wondered, briefly, what else they might find in the ponds. Perhaps there were other girls who had vanished in the college woods, other bones tangled in the roots of the pines along the grassy edges of the water. The bow of the clavicle, the bowl of the pelvis, she had wanted to see. But it was habit now to keep to herself, to appear as unobjectionable as possible. Mute as the white cross hung upon her wall, and banal as the cross-stitch hymns beside it. She'd been spared freckles and red or black hair. Hers was dark brown like soaked wood and lay flatter against her head than was fashionable. She and Bertha simply scraped their damp hair back after a washing, because dowdiness was permissible, even godly. Dowdiness had been a shield for them both. And now, please join me in welcoming Catherine Butner. Hello, Catherine. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Your first novel is titled Alcestis. Uh, who was Alcestis, and what made you want to write a novel about her? This is a great question. Uh, it's not one of the better-known Greek myths, but she is a character from Greek myth, and um, I am familiar with her story partly because I was a classics major in undergrad and had always been just a super myth nerd <laughs> as a kid. Um, and I guess it was actually after I had finished um, college, I was still in keeping with the myth nerdery. I was reading Euripides like on my lunch break at my job. Um, and I had encountered Elphastus' story both in the Euripides play about her and um, there's a really beautiful poem by Rocca um, about her as well. And the very basics of her story is that her husband is given a sort of get out of death free card by Apollo because they're friends. And um, he needs to find someone to go to the underworld in his place, but nobody will agree until his wife, Alcesta, stands up and says, I'll go. And then she is in the traditional story. She's rescued by Heracles, Hercules, and brought back after a few days of being in the underworld. And I was really fascinated by the fact that her story, as it's told um, in some of the traditional sources, doesn't track her into the underworld at all. And that seemed like the most interesting part of the story to me. So that is a large part of what the novel in, um, describes and follows her uh, into that harrowing of hell story that we get to see with Odysseus and other characters in Greek myth, but not with women, or at least not with women who have chosen 
to go there of their own free will. That does sound like a very interesting angle. Um, So let's move now to your current novel. Uh, I'm a Mount Holyoke alumna, and I recognize many of the places you described. In fact, it was kind of fun um, seeing the name of the president and suddenly think, oh, you know, I lived in Mead Hall. (laughs) At one time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I had never heard of this student who vanished in 1897. How did you uh, learn about it? And what can you tell us about the actual historical incident? I first encountered this. So first of all, I'm a Smith alum, so just down the road from Mount Holyoke and also a women's college, but I had never heard of her either. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school uh, at UT Austin and working at the Harry Ransom Center, I was doing research for a patron as an intern and going through the uh, Hearst, some of the Hearst papers that they had archives of that were on microfilm. So just like seasick scrolling, <laughs> looking for a way to answer this, this patron's question. I can tell you more about that if you're curious. But I stumbled across the headline about Bertha having disappeared. It was an article that was published three years after she disappeared about how she had never been found. Um, and the title was Led to Death by Her Child of Fancy, which was incredibly confusing. <laughs> and very, very compelling and interesting. And so I just wanted to find out more about it. I ended up very soon after that going to Mount Holyoke's own archives and special collections. They do have some material on Bertha and her disappearance there, not a ton. Um, And what happened was that it was on Founders Day, which you'll be familiar with from Mount Holyoke as well. Uh, In 1897, this, this student, Bertha Mellish, had her engaged or, you know, uh, do not disturb, basically sign up on her dorm room. And then someone finally realized that she was not in her room. And there were many searches and many um, police and investigators involved, and they never determined what happened to her. So there is a lot of um, newspaper documentation of various rumors and ways that the police were trying to get more information and possibilities um, from the time, but uh, a lack of resolution. And I guess um, as a storyteller, that was very promising feeling (laughs) to me. Um, So I I did a lot of research, but I also was thankful to have this sort of open-ended actual historical event that I could dig into and try and figure out what story I wanted to tell about it. Yes, I can see why that would intrigue you. Led to death by her child of fancy. That is so Victorian. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, amazing. And it was an interview that we'll get to him later, but this was it was an interview with Dr. Hammond talking about why he was still searching for her three years later, the family doctor. So even from the beginning of finding out about the story, I was just thinking, why is the family doctor the one who's being interviewed by journalists? You know, three years later, it was just, there was a lot of, mysterious sort of relationship dynamics that that seemed like they would be uh, easily transformable into something dramatic and interesting. Yes, indeed. Um, In your novel, Bertha's disappearance is crucial in the sense that it frames and defines the main arc of the plot. But the story is about so much more. Um, So how did you approach the task of turning that historical incident into fiction? Yeah, I mean, this sort of builds on what I was saying just about those relationship dynamics. I think for me, that was really the entry point into the story was thinking, okay, so we have this young woman who's disappeared. We have her family, um, her father, mother, and sister who are involved in looking for her. 
we have the family doctor, question mark, um, private investigators, police, you know, fellow classmates at the college and faculty and staff at the college and just so many people whose who's, um, experiences of her disappearance might be competing. So in a way, I think it was not dissimilar to building on um, the myth of Alcestis in the sense that like there's sort of a skeleton, there's an architecture, um, but as with mythology, I mean, a lot of it is uncertain at this distance. I, I have, you know, the newspaper accounts and um, letters written by students at the time, but I don't have access to the actual psychological interiority of the real people. That was something I was, I was very conscious of, I guess, as well. I mean, one reason for, for this or one way that I thought about this, um, I was teaching at the University of Hawaii for a time and I was in a, um, a junior faculty seminar with other uh, young faculty working on our various research projects in different areas. And a colleague of mine who's Maori said to me in, in one of these meetings, she said, so you're writing about people's ancestors, <laughs> other people's ancestors? And that was something I really thought about was what kinds of responsibilities, I mean, from a legal standpoint, I'm perfectly clear in the sense that none of the people who are the main characters in this book, the ones who are not fictional, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more in a moment too, none of them had this children. And so I didn't feel that I was um, maligning anybody's ancestors by telling the story that I created uh, based on these real people. But it was important for me to remain aware of the fact that they are real people and they did have real lives. Um, and so the way that I approached that, I guess, was through thinking about how the choices of perspective that I made, um, whose POV we were in, um, how much we actually learned about what various characters are thinking at different points through the novel, how that would help us to kind of see them as really fully fleshed out and developed people, and also how it would give me the ability to, um, one of my main points of interest for the book is these cultural questions, you know, what did it mean to be a young woman who was in college in the 1890s? Or um, what did it mean to want to be a doctor as a woman? Or what did it mean to be a man who was being encountered, uh, encountering these young women who were sort of transgressing the bounds of quote unquote traditional gender roles? And those were some of the questions I was really interested in getting at. And that was why I thought fiction was such a good way to do it. So at this point, we're really moving out of the historical realm, because as you mentioned, you don't know anything about the uh, psychology of, of even the historical characters. And then we're going to talk about some of the fictional ones as well. So let's start with Bertha. And what is important for us to know about your Bertha uh, as a personality before and during her time as a student at Mount Holyoke? It's a, it's a great question. And I guess my Bertha... I think my Bertha and the historical Bertha are identical at the beginning of the book <laughs> and are not identical by the end of the book, but there are some things that are historically true. She was described by a classmate as, um, quote, the most peculiar, quiet, reserved girl at the college, which instantly made her fascinating to me. Um, she was the daughter of a Congregationalist minister, but everyone at the college knew that she was agnostic, which was unusual at the time. Mount Holyoke can only not been a seminary school for a couple of years. She was interested in classics and debate. She was scheduled to, to be one of the leading arguers in a, an important debate on campus right before she disappeared. So I had a concept of her as a, a driven and fairly serious and dedicated student who also um, had strong opinions, I guess. That's how I see Bertha. 
Agnes Sullivan is the first person we meet, uh, although she is thinking about Bertha when we meet her. Uh, she is a fictional character. Uh, introduce us to her, her background, her character, and what drives her. Sure. So Agnes is Bertha's best friend at Mount Holyoke. And as you said, she is not real. She is fictional. And I created her because it seemed to me that if I was going to be telling the story of Bertha disappearing, I needed a character who would actually have been close enough to Bertha to inform us in a real way about what Bertha was really like. Um, she is also a tough, driven, excuse me, very intelligent um, young woman. She wants to be a surgeon. She grows up in poverty in South Boston. Um, she's a fairly sort of prickly and um, protective and sometimes uh, very good at, at, I would say, sort of stuffing down feelings that she doesn't want to deal with. I find her just a, a compelling figure who makes me think about what women at that time might have needed to do in order to get ahead in the world. And how do they operate as friends? What does each of them offer to the other? Yeah, I see it as, I mean, Bertha as the more sort of impetuous, expansive, dramatic side of the friendship, and Agnes sort of more stable and, um, I mean, I think I've said protective already, but I think that is one of the, the key elements that she's sort of looking out for Bertha. Bertha is very dedicated to her work, but she also is the kind of person who will tell everybody at this very religious college that she's an agnostic. Um, and Agnes is a lot more uh, careful about what she's willing to reveal about herself. This was a time when Catholic students were not actually admitted to the college. Um, it was not until 1900 that the first Catholic student was officially admitted. So Agnes has a secret. And as Bertha, as it becomes clear that Bertha has some too, even after she's disappeared, I think Agnes is really invested in protecting whatever Bertha wanted to keep to herself. When Bertha's first reported missing, how did the police react? They took it really seriously. I mean, pretty quickly, they dredged the nearby river. They were drained. They drained the ponds on campus. There were, you know, um, I mean, the, they're in the book. There's an actual copy of a broadside that was produced and printed by the family later, um, offering a reward for the girl alive, as it says on the broadside. So there was a large investigation and there were I mean, there are many theories, including that she might have, you know, as, as based on the river dredging and pond draining, that she might have drowned herself, died by suicide. Um, but they really weren't certain at all about what happened. So a lot of this is documented, as I said, in these um, letters from her classmates writing home to their families it, with a lot of angst about, you know, clues and we don't know anything about what's happened to Bertha and her family has come and visited campus and et cetera. So there was, there was a pretty serious and large scale investigation at the time. As you mentioned, her father and sister are summoned uh, from Killingly, which is a great title for this particular book, but I discovered <laughs> only while reading the book that it's an actual town in Connecticut. Um, how would you describe her father and his reaction to his daughter's disappearance? I will, but I first have to say, yes, when I first realized that that was the name of the town Bertha was from, <laughs> I felt very grateful to the world. Um, 
Yeah, her father. So Bertha's father was much older um, when she vanished, as was her mother. And so the, you know, the other students on campus report that they come to campus. They don't say much about either of them. Historically, he's a bit of a cipher. Um, because he's a Congregationalist minister, I drew on some contemporary Congregationalist writing to shape the way I thought about how he might have approached the world. He used to have POV sections in the book, which came out during one of the many, many edits and revisions that I went through on this. So my version of John, John Mellish, her father, is um, very determined to find Bertha, but he also fears that her loss is a punishment from God, which unfortunately I can't say more about for spoiler reasons. But um, yeah, he's, he's very split in his reaction to what's happened. Her sister Florence uh, accompanies her father on this journey to South Hadley, uh, and she becomes an important point of view character. She's also a historical character, although most of what you write is fictional. Um, what do we need to know about her and how she feels about Bertha? Florence is my favorite. I'm a, well, Florence is my favorite. Agnes is my favorite. They're all my favorite. I don't know. Um, she, the real Florence attended Mount Holyoke for a year when it was still a seminary school and then became a high school teacher and was actually an aspiring writer herself that she would, the college would send out these little alumni update cards. And when she returned her, she talked about publishing poems and stories um, in some, some magazines around I see Florence, I mean, Bertha is the most important person in her life, and she wants Bertha to become independent in a way that she couldn't, and certainly to graduate from Mount Holyoke. Um, so Florence is, Florence is the one who navigates what the family means in the novel. Um, she is really our entry point into how Bertha's family life shaped uh, what happened to her and how it shaped Florence herself. It is a little curious that um, the reverend is accompanied by his daughter and not by his wife, Sarah. Why is that? Uh, I mean, from from the contemporary historical record, what's said is just basically her mother was, uh, was elderly and ill, um, so sort of frail, both mentally and physically at that time. And obviously in the book, I kind of put forward some context for that. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it, it is a matter of historical record that both Sarah and John were unusually older um, in terms of their age related to Bertha's age. And so at the time, it just seems people seem to have accepted that Sarah simply wasn't really up to the trip at that point. That brings us to their traveling companion, Dr. Henry Hammond. Uh, what can you tell us about him uh, and especially his intense determination to find Bertha, even if it means overriding her family members to do so? Yeah, I find Hammond really fascinating. So as a historical figure, as I said, he was kind of my entry point into this story, into the case, because of that newspaper interview that I found. Um, and I found the fact that he was obsessed with finding Bertha three years later kind of weird. Um, he delivered her. He had been the family doctor for that long. Um, and so I was curious to try to figure out how I might conceive of that relationship or web of relationships, I guess. And in the novel, he kind of, I think, represents to me um, some of the saturation of sort of casual sexism that women would have had to encounter. I mean, not because he's a particularly bad man or anything like that, but because he just is operating in a world in which he has, as most of the world does, um, or at least in American culture at that moment, like particular ideas about women. In fact, he's even fairly progressive. And the historical Hammond 
um, fought, you know, on the Union side in the Civil War, was an abolitionist, like in many ways, seems to have been a pretty upstanding member of the community. Um, and yet I couldn't get past kind of finding his, the intensity, as you say, of his determination to find Bertha just kind of unsettling. Uh, and so I think the novel is partly me sort of trying to work that out. As part of uh, this quest, uh, he hires a detective, uh, Thomas, I'm not sure if you say Higgum or Higham, but in any case, to solve the case. Higgum. Higgum. He also has a story. Where is he at this point in his life and what inspires him about this case? Higgum is fictional, although the family did hire investigators. So he um, he's sort of my version of one of the private investigators. He's a former Boston policeman. Um, we would identify him as queer or a gay man. Um, he will actually be a main character in the next novel. I'm happy to say more about that in a bit. I see him, I think he's interested in Bertha because she's an outsider and he sees Agnes as also a kind of outsider figure at the college. Um, and he is the sort of detective character who is interested in the puzzle much more than in the emotions of the humans who are involved. And so he's the sort of more procedural element of the story, I would say. One of the rather contradictory things about Dr. Hammond, uh, given his need for control in this particular incident, <laughs> is that he loves cats. Um, and uh, as a person who uh, is uh, surrounded by cats all the time, I really like that. Could you say a bit about this interest of his? Oh, so much to say. Um, so I'll start by just saying, I mean, that's, that's real. Hammond himself and his wife, um, they were cat fanciers. They were cat breeders at, at the time. And I found, you know, historical accounts of their, uh, what sounds like essentially Siamese cats that they were, that they were breeding and showing at the time. And this was one of those historical coincidences that I could never have come up with on my own. So Bertha, the debate that Bertha was supposed to be participating in before she disappeared was about um, whether vivisection of animals for scientific research was justified. She was supposed to argue that it was. Um, and Hammond is a cat fancier and a cat breeder. And the girls at Mount Holyoke in their zoology classes, and this is in the letters as well, dissected cats as their zoology class sort of final assignment. They would dissect them and then um, sort of reassemble the cat skeletons. I am also a cat, like I am a dedicated cat. I love dogs too, but I am a cat person. I have a purring 16-year-old Siamese mixed cat in my lap right now. <laughs> um, this was really challenging for me to write, but the thematic resonance of it just felt really compelling to me that, that all of these ways of sort of I'm fascinated by the way that we culturally feminize cats and masculinize dogs, um, that we treat cats as, as you say, right, like as uncontrollable and wild and um, whereas dogs are sort of the reliable man's best friend. And um, we, the idea of the cat lady is really similar to the witch. Um, and so I think that all those resonances about what cats mean felt like they added so much to the novel um, but it was really challenging uh, to, to address some of those elements in the zoology classes and et cetera. I can imagine. It was challenging to read them, I have to say. Uh, riveting, but also painful. And what I like is not quite the right word. I understand why you did it, and I think it 
aids the story by opening a window on um, certainly the medical view of um, dissection, which is Agnes's, but also, I think, a Victorian view. It's much more dismissive of animals as, as being the equivalent of human beings and, and deserving to be treated in the same way as human beings. Yeah, I mean, for, you know, there's there are some little bits in the novel of, of Bertha's speech for the debate, and those are drawn from a real pamphlet at the time that was arguing in favor of vivisection as a legitimate means of gathering scientific knowledge as long as it could be done humanely. Um, and again, like, yeah, to me, I think Hilary Mantel has this quote that I'm forever going back to about how the the danger of the past isn't, you know, sort of romantic fripperies, but the things that we would find obscene in the past. Um, and I think that this was one of those things for me. And as I said, like challenging as it was to write about and challenging as I know it can be to read about, it was, I find myself drawn to those places, I guess, those places where how differently we do see the world and see ourselves and see non-human animals and all of that, like that, I think just tells us a lot about what it was actually like to live in a different time. And for Agnes as a character, I think it also demonstrates that her surgical training requires kind of stealing herself um, in order to cause what feels like harm in order to do good. And that feels pretty central to her character for me. It does. Um, and she, she is emotionally restrained as well as a character. It's not that she doesn't feel, but that she doesn't, she doesn't revel in her feelings. She's, she's very intellectual. Yeah, I agree. So as I mentioned, one of the fun parts of this for me was seeing the campus um, that I remember from years ago. But of course, the campus has changed a lot. Uh, it had changed a lot when I was there, and there are new buildings since. Uh, it's surprising how many of those old buildings from the center of the campus are still there. But how did you go about recreating the Mount Holyoke of 1897 as distinct from Mount Holyoke now? Sure. I mean, archival material. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot available um, in the archives at Mount Holyoke. There's a lot available online, um, just in terms of getting the sort of actual layout of the place right and accurate. Um, I've, of course, been there. I stayed on campus when I was doing research in the archives. Um, I was also drawing on uh, contemporary college novels. So other, it was a, a sort of mini genre, a subgenre that was that was popular at the time, the sort of hijinks on college campuses. And so for trying to produce a sense of what the community might have felt like, I was drawing on that. And then at, in grad school, I just was really, I mean, my my actual area of specialty is 18th century literature, but I also was very into sort of Victorian, into Edwardian, all the way to Virginia Woolf. Um, literature. And so I was also just drawing a lot on um, structurally and also in, in terms of language and dialogue on Victorian novels. Intense female friendship is a theme in the novel, in part because that's something that you get at women's colleges, in part because of the way outsiders are seeing the college uh, because it contains only women, and in part because it reflects the relationships among the um, students. Uh, so that includes Bertha and Agnes. Could you say something about that element of the book? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think as the, you know, I graduated from Smith in, in 2003. Um, it's already a quite different place at this point. Um, and, and I think that I really valued 
the community that I found there. When I'm thinking about the time period that Bertha and Agnes are living in in the novel, um, I think there's just such a, a both different and transforming sense of what friendship among women could mean. So they are sort of at the tail end of a time where in American and British culture in particular, um, there was this idea of romantic friendship between women, which was not seen as sexual um, and was really valorized, was seen as a, an honorable and uplifting way that women re related to one another. And that was starting to shift in the 1880s and 1890s because of the sexologists and the shift towards sort of, um, I guess I would say pathologizing sexuality um, and, and moving toward, you know, Freudian interpretations of things and stuff like that. So I think people, men, culture, however you wanted to say it, were starting to have a sense that queerness between women could could exist, could be sexual, um, and that those romantic friendships that they thought were so innocent and um, and chaste might not have been. And I'm really fascinated by that. And I also think that just there is something appealing to me about stories that have a kind of us against the world um, mentality. And that or it's a trope that can feel exciting. And I think that Bertha and Agnes saw themselves as the real serious students, um, the ones who were going to do, uh, who had ambitions that they were actually going to live out, that they weren't going to get, um, I don't know, derailed, I guess, by, uh, by marriage or children or, or things of that sort. And so I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of exploring both what it, what it might have felt like to be in an environment where romantic friendship was still fairly normalized. And there are lots of um, there was certainly a lot of documentation showing that there were these sort of crushes and um, very public celebrations of um, love between the young women at the college. And then also at a moment when people like Hammond and, and other figures in the novel are kind of wondering, is this what it seems? Uh, what does this actually mean? How do we interpret these relationships between these young women? Um, so yeah, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of that. And especially because I think we're in a time now where once again, you know, some folks in our culture broadly have some ideas about what they think of as traditional gender roles or sexuality and things like that and react with a great deal of fear when they say that, see those things as being threatened. What would you like people to take away from Killing Lee? Oh, a couple of things. I think one is just um, a sense, a, a sort of felt sense of what it might have been like to live in that moment. Um, not just thinking about sexuality, but thinking about gender roles. This was the time of the conception of the, you know, capital N, capital W, new woman who was going to move into the public sphere and be independent and possibly work for herself and um, how that would have felt exciting, but also I think um, nerve-wracking, I guess, to be entering these, these new spaces culturally. Um, I think it also, I wanted to get across some sense of what can feel so special about environments like historically women's colleges, where you can feel this kind of supportiveness. Um, and also, I mean, I'm, I would like it to be a, a good and suspenseful story uh, in which maybe by the end of it, it in tracking what might have happened to Bertha in this version of the story, um, it sort of led people to to think about what choices did she have and what choices could she even see.
um, in the environment that she was living in. Well, it is certainly that. You did a great job. Um, I really couldn't put it down, as they say. Uh, You've already mentioned that you're working on another novel. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I would be happy to, yes. So this novel, which is a follow-up, is due due to Soho uh, in a couple years. And um, it is tentatively titled The Social Evil. It follows Higgum, the investigator, and my version of Nellie Bly, um, the woman stunt reporter. So she actually used to be in Killingly, and she was one of the many the many casualties of the many edits um, because she wanted wanted her own novel. Clearly, basically, is what's happening. So Higgum ends up in New York City, as happens, um, as is sort of hinted at in the course of the book here, and then encounters this reporter, and they end up investigating crimes that are being committed in um, working class. Queer New York City neighborhoods, I guess, and environments uh, around 1900. So it's going to be set around the same time, but a pretty different environment and a new POV character I'm really excited about. Yeah, we didn't talk too much about Higgum as a person, but he is a very interesting character, and I can quite see him interacting with Nellie Bly. I wish you all success with that, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Catherine. Thank you. I so appreciate your wonderful questions. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Catherine Butner about Killingly. Find out more about her at katherinebutner.com. Keep up with our news by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.